Thank you, Michael, for that ministry and music. I've been uh, privileged to be uh, chairing a study committee that was appointed to the denomination. And for the last year and a half, I've been studying some particular theological issues in order to fulfill that assignment. And one of them has led me to a study of what the Word of God refers to as the second Adam. As Jesus is the second Adam, for he... Uh, is likened unto the first Adam and his representation of us before God. And as the second Adam, he restores all that has been lost through the first Adam. And so two weeks ago, I emphasized that in our relationship to Adam, or our union to him, we have sin, condemnation, and death. In our relationship or union to Christ, we have righteousness, justification, and life. And two Sunday nights ago, I unpacked all of that, and uh, there will be more of that in the future. But I said that I would then address the issue of how we are united to Adam and how we are united to Christ. Because that is foundational to our understanding of all the Word of God. There is nothing more important than what we're going to consider this evening, and it sheds a great deal of light in our understanding of how the whole Bible fits together. So the theme is, how are we united to Adam, or brought into union with Adam and subsequently to Christ? So first, how are we united to Adam? And the answer is that is in two ways. First, We are united to Adam and share in his sin, condemnation, and death as a result of being physical descendants of Adam. In the more modern theologies, that's referred to as his natural headship. Old systematic theologies referred to that as seminal headship, coming from the word semen. The idea of of having a physical relationship to Adam. Number one, the concept of natural headship is illustrated in the person of Abraham. Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Here, that obviously should be H-E-R-E, here the actions of Abraham are attributed to the actions of Levi, 
as a result of Levi being a physical descendant of Abraham. As a result of being physical descendants of Adam, we are viewed as participating in the sin, condemnation, and its resulting death. How do we know this to be true, and why is it important? Well, first, its truth and importance is seen in Christ being born of a virgin. As a result of Christ being born of a virgin, he did not inherit Adam's sinful nature, condemnation, and death. So that is crucial to our understanding of who Jesus is before God. He is not considered to be a descendant of Adam and thus does not inherit his sinful nature. B. The promised Messiah is prophesied from the very time of the fall is coming through the lineage of, of uh, that should be Eve, not Mary, Eve. Through the lineage of Eve as opposed to Adam. Look at Genesis 3.14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now here God is talking to uh, the serpent. He's talking to Adam, and God refers to the seed of the woman as opposed to the seed of Adam. So, the lineage is traced back to Eve. See, that he would not stand in a place of condemnation. Jesus could not be of Adam's lineage. In the book of Luke, Jesus' lineage is traced to Adam, not through Mary, but Joseph with the emphasis that he was not the physical father of Jesus. Uh, You're going to see that in Luke 3.23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of uh, Heli. N.A.S. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph. And if you notice in Luke 3.38 then, is the lineage, and it says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of God. So, through Adam, his lineage is traced by his father Joseph, who the scripture makes clear is not his physical father. B. We have union to Adam's sin, condemnation, and death as a result of the covenant. This is referred to as federal headship. Adam is referred to as the son of God as a result of a covenantal relationship to God. Luke 3.38 The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam called a son of God. But not in any sense of which he is a part of God's family, if you will, but he is rather a son of God by 
covenant. So we have a relationship to Adam through a covenant that God made with Adam as representative head of all mankind. This covenant that God made with Adam is referred to in the book of Hosea, Hosea 6-7. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Again, NIV, like Adam, they have broken the covenant. It is not simply a matter that we are physical descendants of Adam that his sins are attributed to us. If it were a matter of merely being a physical descendant of Adam, then sin would have entered the world and passed upon us because of the actions of Eve. After all, it was Eve who sinned first. It was Eve who ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then gave the fruit to Adam, and Adam ate. And yet, the scripture doesn't say that sin came from Eve. It says that sin came from Adam. Because Adam is the one that God has put in charge. He is the one with whom God had made a covenant. He is the one who represents mankind. So B, the sinful nature comes from Adam and not Eve, even though Eve sinned first. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Referring to Adam. Why? Because Adam was the one with whom God made the covenant. Now, we might object and say, that's not fair. Why should I have sin condemnation and judgment because Adam is my representative? I didn't ask him to be my representative. Why should his sin be counted to me? Well, Adam was a suitable representative. Uh, He did, in fact, represent us. Not just in his actions, but in his very character, in his being. We are, in fact, like Adam. And if we were placed in the garden, and if we were given that command, you and I would have done exactly the same thing that Adam did. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that through the testimony of Scripture, Hosea 6-7, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There are other covenants in the Word of God, and Israel broke those covenants. We break those covenants all the time. We break God's law. And so, we are just like Adam. We are covenant breakers. We disobey God. And secondly, we know that through the testimony of human experience. We know the consequences of sin, and we still choose to sin. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to aid us in overcoming sin, and we still choose to sin. You and I, today, knowing all that we know about the Word of God, knowing all that we know about the consequences of sin, knowing all that we know about the opportunities that avail us to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with all that we enjoy spiritually, you and I still sin. If, with all the advantages we have, we still sin, how in the world do we think that we wouldn't have sinned in the Garden of Eden? He was, in fact, A good, right, appropriate representative for us. Now, lest we get bent out of shape about all of that, see, the principle of imputation works for us, not against us. 
We are condemned for Adam's sin. This is true. Romans 5, 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So here we find, in verse 13, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. In other words, put more simply, the law that is referred to is the law that is given in the time of Moses, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to us never as a means of salvation, but rather the Ten Commandments were given to us to show us the sinful people that we are, to reveal the fact that we are not righteous, we do not love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, and we don't love our neighbors ourselves. It was never intended that a person would be kept by keeping the law. The law was given to reveal our sinfulness. Galatians says that it was our schoolmaster leading us to Jesus Christ. It was to show the necessity of sacrifice, of forgiveness, of redemption. And so, sin was still in the world, even before you had the Ten Commandments. Even those people that hadn't sinned in the exact same way Adam had sinned, by breaking a specific revealed commandment of God, they were still sinful. Why? Because of Adam. Because of Adam. Secondly, if, it were not, if we were not condemned for Adam's sin, we'd be, consumed, we'd be condemned for our own sin anyway. Hosea 6, 7. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They, have, they were unfaithful to me there. Romans three twenty three, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 1, 2, and 3 deals with personal sin. It talks about our mouths being sepulchers, with our tongues being a source of evil. It says there is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. And so Romans begins by pointing out our individual sinfulness. We all are individual sinners. But it moves in its argument from our individual sin to our corporate sin. And talks about the fact that we are all sinners because of Adam. Because of Adam. So here is how imputation works for us. D. We are justified by Christ's righteousness. Just as we are condemned because of our union with Adam, we are seen as sinners, we are seen as condemned, and we die in our union with Christ we have righteousness, we have justification, we have life. Number one, we are justified by Christ's righteousness and we have no righteousness of our own. Christ provides the righteousness we lacked because of Adam. Three, Christ provides the righteousness which we lacked on our own. Notice Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. There is, an, a, a, there is a asymmetrical symmetry here. There, there is not a complete balance. While there are similarities between Adam 
the first and Adam the second, between Adam and Jesus Christ, though there are parallels, there is a very marked and important difference. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the transgression. In what way? For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the man who sinned. In what way? For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So here is one transgression. The eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it resulted in condemnation for all mankind. But, on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So, the free gift covers the many transgressions. Not just Adam's transgression of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but that transgression and your transgressions and my transgressions. It covers it all. It covers it all. So, two, how are we united to Christ? First, we are not united to Christ as a result of being physical descendants of Christ. God the Father made a covenant with Christ as the second Adam. Luke 2.22 Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Hebrews 2.24 And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 13.20 Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, our shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So this is a new covenant that God made not with Adam, but with Christ, his son. And Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant that God made with Christ. We are not benefactors of this covenant by physical descent. Look at John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to get them gave he right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood. Notice how the NIV translates that, verse 13. Children born not of natural descent. You and I are not physical descendants of Jesus Christ. Nor do we have to be. In fact, no one becomes united to Christ as a result of physical lineage. That's what is meant in Corinthians when it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It is simply saying that you can't inherit the kingdom of God by tracing your lineage to Jesus. He had no children. And you aren't his physical descendant. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Three, we become the sons of God 
by adoption through faith. So we are the sons of God by adoption as opposed to physical lineage. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So we are adopted into the family of God. We are the sons of God through faith. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are not born of natural descent. So we become a part of God's family through adoption, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we become sons of God through a union with Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I underline these words, in Christ, because this phrase is used repeatedly. I'm going to pass out in a couple of weeks two pages of references of which we constantly hear this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It refers to our union with Christ in our solidarity with Christ. Because we belong to Christ, all of these blessings are ours. Because He is our head, as opposed to Adam is our head, we have all these wonderful spiritual blessings. Jesus is the true Son of God through relationship and not just covenant. Now, one of the things that is interesting to work through in the New Testament is Jesus being referred to as the Son of God. And that is used actually in two ways. It's used in terms of the covenant in the same way that Adam is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. But, having said that, there is a much higher, elevated sense in which... Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, and it is given to us in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What is unique about Jesus is that he, in fact, is a part of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God. That second person of the Trinity took upon himself human flesh. So that he was the God-man. He was the God-man. And so as the Son of God, he at, one point, at, 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 he at one time is the true Son of God. In his humanity and in his deity. In his humanity, he's the Son of God because of the covenant that God made with him. In his deity, he is the Son of God because he is uniquely a part of the Trinity. So Jesus is the Son of God in the absolute, fullest sense of that word. Which then brings us to, uh, well, let me uh, read Romans uh, 8. So this Jesus is the true heir of the righteousness of God. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs 
also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So Christ is a true heir of righteousness. It belongs to him. He's part of God's family, if you will, in the truest sense of that word. He's not adopted. He's not adopted. His righteousness is genuine. His righteousness is real. We are adopted, but we are adopted into His family. And because we are adopted into His family, then we share in that righteousness as well. However, Jesus was also the second Adam by covenant. It is the man, the second Adam, who will nullify the effects of the fall. Now, this is what I'm going to uh, unpack in the weeks to come. Because it's really marvelous to see that Jesus, the man, if you will, Jesus, the one who's born of a virgin, the Messiah, Jesus, is going to accomplish all that the first Adam destroyed. Uh, so we're going to look at this in, in great detail because it's, it's tremendously encouraging. It's, it's wonderful. It's terrific. And it helps prepare us for the understanding of Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him as man. As man. As man, he is highly exalted. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're going to see that he's going to reign as the second Adam. And exercising dominion over this earth that Adam failed to exercise. But we get ahead of ourselves. Two, as man, Jesus has the covenant righteousness of sinless observance of the law of God. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and one mediator between God and man. And then notice these next words. The man, Christ Jesus. You see, there is one mediator. There, there, there is one who is able to step into the gap and bridge the distance between God and man. Who is it? It's the man, Christ Jesus. It's this one who's born of the virgin. This second Adam is able to bridge the gap between God and us. So, D, I am lost through union with Adam based on federal headship. Sin, condemnation, death are ours. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all of sin. I am made righteous through union with Christ based on federal headship. Righteousness, justification, and life. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So, F, Christ succeeded federally 
where Adam had failed federally. He was a wonderful representation of us. He was a terrific uh, head for us in living righteously, living holy, fulfilling the covenant that God had given to him. So three, the contrast of being united to the first Adam as opposed to being united to the second Adam. First, there's the contrast of physical and spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15, 4-5. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Through Adam, we have physical life. Through Christ, we have spiritual life. Now, we also are going to have physical life. We're going to have resurrection life. We're going to look at all that. But the emphasis is that through Adam, we merely had physical life. But through Christ, not only do we get physical life, but spiritual life as well. Then there's the contrast of origin. 1 Corinthians 15:47. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second was from heaven. The first from the dust of the earth. The second from heaven. Referring to the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. The only begotten of the Father. No one else like Him. No one else who was the Son of God who took upon Himself and added to His deity humanity. Nobody like that. And there will be nobody again. For not only is He referred to in the Scripture as the second Adam, but the last Adam. And then thirdly, the contrast of the results of the union. 1 Corinthians 15, 48 and 49. As with the earthly man... So are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Just as there is a family resemblance to Adam, there is a family resemblance to Jesus Christ. Now here the metaphor changes. Here, the metaphor doesn't work. And so we're given an additional metaphor in the Scripture. Not only are we called the sons of God by adoption, but there is a wonderful term that's used in the Scripture. And that is of being born again. Born again. Why does the Word of God choose to use the terminology born again to describe the relationship that we enjoy with Jesus Christ? Answer, because it's as though we were born a second time. Nicodemus says to Jesus, when Jesus says you must be born again, he said, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? No, you can't. No, you can't. You can't enter your mother's womb a second time. But you can become united to God's family. You can have a new relationship to God. So, number one, from Adam, we received a sinful nature. 
due to our physical descent. Through Christ, we receive a new nature through adoption and being born again into God's family. So notice these incredible words of 2 Peter verse 4 of chapter 1. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. You can and I can actually taste, actually experience being a part of God's own nature. God's own being. And you say, how in the world can that be? Well, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us. Christ is in you. And as such, we are referred to as being partakers of the divine spirit. With the intention that we will be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we will look like him. That we will bear that family resemblance. Just as you may look like your mother, your father, your aunt, your uncle... This is so that we would look like Jesus Christ. To be conformed to his image. To be conformed to his likeness. The third person of the Trinity is most often referred to as the Holy Spirit. Now, we could easily refer to the Holy Father. And we can easily refer to the Holy Son. It's just not, it's not just the, the Spirit that is holy, to be sure. And I personally think that we even see the, the uh, Trinity in Isaiah, where it says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I think the, uh, the hymn writer is right when he penned the word, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and he, he talks about the Blessed Trinity. I think that's what... Isaiah is referring to. So we can talk about the Father to be sure is holy, and we can talk about the Son to be sure is holy, and we can talk about the, the Spirit is holy. But the reason that the Spirit is referred to as the Holy Spirit is because that's the primary function and role of the Spirit of God in our lives. Producing holiness. Changing us. Transforming us to be more like Jesus Christ. Through Adam, we inherit a sinful nature. Through Christ, we become partakers of a divine nature. And the Holy Spirit actually comes and lives and indwells us to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. But have no doubt about it. Tonight, we are saved solely, solely, solely. On the basis of Jesus Christ. We are saved because His righteousness is applied to us. He is our head. We are chosen in Christ, in union with Christ. He is our righteousness. I am acceptable to God because of Him. I am united to him through faith. 
I become a child of God. I'm adopted into the family. I become an heir with all the blessings that are associated with that. And then on top of that, I'm also born again. It's as though there's a new me. So that Second Corinthians says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Jesus Christ, that old is done away. Paul says in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, who gave himself for me. I'm crucified. I'm dead in my old self. But I'm alive in Jesus Christ. You are dead as a sinner. But you're alive in Jesus Christ. Our union with Christ is everything in the Word of God. He is our confidence. He is our sole hope. He is our sole joy. He is going to and has restored everything, everything that we lost in Adam. And he makes it all new. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks of those areas of restoration that we may not necessarily associate with salvation, but is absolutely key and and, and central to the Word of God that this is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He is the second Adam doing away with all the curse that's associated with the first Adam. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the true, true Son of God. The only begotten Son of God. We're also thankful that he is the Son of God by covenant. And that he represents us before you. And that through union with Christ, we too can become the sons of God. We too can enjoy this unique relationship to you, this, this paternal relationship, this, this fellowship, being an heir of righteousness. Oh Lord, give us confidence tonight, not in ourselves, not in our goodness, not in our works, but in Jesus Christ, who through him we are made right with you. And through him, now we are beginning to be changed, taking on more of a family resemblance as a result of being born again and being partakers of the Holy Spirit. Bless us, I pray. Teach us more. Give us joy and confidence and rejoicing in all that you are doing. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.